I remember the first week or so in class being puzzled why only the guys were talking. <laughs> yeah. And I, I kept looking at the other women and saying, don't you have something to add here? The public-private thing is very interesting. Um, one of the things that's nice about a public system is you all share good times and bad times. At a private institution, you, you make it or don't make it all on your own. Finally, there are women that are coming out in sufficient numbers to feel confident that they can say things and be believed. That's really important. Welcome to the Chancellor Series brought to you by the Precy Podcast. I'm Carter Poppy. Over the next three weeks, I am talking with leaders in education from around North Carolina who started or built their career at NC State. Each of these individuals have now moved on to become chancellors or presidents of North Carolina colleges and universities and are making big impacts at those institutions. First on the list is Dr. Joe Allen, who is the president of Meredith College and a former administrator in academic affairs at NC State. She has an interesting perspective on matters of gender, equity, North Carolina politics, and we even got into a little bit of discussing the Me Too movement at the end of our discussion. Let's get started. Just do, I mean, just do whatever feels natural. We're having a conversation. If you can forget about the mics. Even better. Even better. There you yeah. go. Okay. I am Dr. Joe Allen. I am the president of Meredith College right down the street. Uh, I'm the first alumna president of Meredith, and I'm in my seventh year as president there. So it's good to be home and back at a campus I love with students and faculty staff that I love. And truly special to be back in Raleigh. Were you raised in North Carolina? I was. I okay. grew up in a small town in eastern North Carolina, a little town called LaGrange, about halfway from Raleigh to the beach, as we say. It's a good stopping place. Um, very small town, about 3,000 people. Um, and my sister is a couple of years older than I am, and she decided on Meredith very early. She decided actually in the fifth grade. She had a fifth grade teacher who was a Meredith alum, and so she knew from the fifth grade she wanted to go to Meredith. I didn't know where I wanted to go um, until I went and visited, came up and visited my sister in her freshman year, and I saw how special Meredith was. It was an easy choice for me. Nice. So, Props to her for knowing what she wanted absolutely. to do so early. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and what was your undergraduate experience like at Meredith? So I did my undergraduate degree in English and sort of a, a minor in history and political science. Uh, loved it very much. Loved the experience of being at Meredith. It was uh, a great opportunity to develop. Uh, I, th I would say I, I developed my voice. I, you know, defined myself a lot better, built a lot of confidence and some leadership ability even then, and and really felt the supportive atmosphere that Meredith is. And uh, I was I was. In fact, one of the things I remember visiting my sister, uh, that her faculty knew who she was. And we walked through the hallway on a Friday afternoon, late Friday afternoon, and one of them stopped and asked her what plans were for the weekend and what she studied, you know, things like that. I said, you know, these people really know 
who she is and all of that. And and that's that's very appealing when you're in a college environment and and uh, not sure that you're going to have friends, much less any faculty that know you. So, right. students at NC State would be interested to hear about the small liberal arts experience, and then also the I think the particulars of being at a all girls college. You know, one of the, one of the fun things about being at Meredith is, uh, as I've always said, my, I've never had a better social life than when I was at Meredith College because guys from state were calling all the time. <laughs> we're having a party. We'll come pick you up. And Chapel Hill and Duke was doing the same, you know. So that was a lot of fun. And um, at the time, there weren't as many women here at NC State as, as there are now. Um, so that was it was a really easy relationship with mm-hmm making friends in Raleigh, which is something I find very exciting still about Raleigh. Is, I mean, the, the, the number of college students here from our six primary colleges and universities makes it a great environment for young people. Um, and, and people making those connections, it's a very fluid college student community. Right. So I think sometimes we set up some artificial boundaries at our campus boundaries and, and think that, our students never intermingle or meet or, you know, and they do all the time. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. really quite special. So I found After that. graduating from Meredith, Dr. Allen went to East Carolina University where she earned her master's degree in communication and then to Oklahoma State University where she earned her doctorate. She was offered many opportunities around the country after graduating from Oklahoma State. And a lot of the places I found very interesting, like Boston, Chicago, um, Texas and all that, but um, the pay was um, marginally disproportionate for the living conditions in a big city at that time. Uh, so one of the opportunities I had was to return to East Carolina as a faculty member, and so I thought that was a pretty special opportunity to go home, which seems to be a recurring theme in my in my life. Dr. Allen chose to return to ECU as a faculty member. She also held various administrative roles during her time there. And after 13 years at ECU, she took a year off to join a fellowship program by the American Council on Education, or ACE. During the fellowship, she met Dr. Joseph Conway, who was working at NC State at the time. After the fellowship, he offered Dr. Allen an assistant deanship at NC State. But the neat thing was, he said, we know 50% of what this job ought to be. And we want you to take the roles full time and then... You tell us what the other 50% needs to be. So bring some fresh eyes to this. And so I thought it was a wonderful, you know, opportunity. Not many people get to craft at least half of their own job. Uh, So I did. And it was a a great fit, a great move. I came up and interviewed with Dr. James Anderson, who is now the chancellor at Fayetteville State University, who was also an ACE fellow, but several years before Thomas and I were. So there's that little cadre there of uh, of a connection between the fellowship and NC State and and good friendships. And I was also noticing because you know, as I mentioned before we re- started recording, I'm also interested in interviewing Dr. Dr. Anderson and Dr. Conway, and their paths have led them not only like you to be leading a college or university, but they are leading historically black colleges right. and universities right. and you're leading a women's college. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was kind of interesting how, um, you know, this small set of individuals who've previously been at NC state have now moved on to be in, be in roles that are leading universities that are 
meant for either marginalized or underrepresented groups. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, uh, and and it's interesting because if I were to say there was a common thread in there, besides our own personal and, and academic experiences, it's probably that one of the things we did uh, together here was really work to build the first-year college. Yeah. And one of the intentions of that program is to to have a, a huge university like NC State, but to develop within it a, a place that feels smaller, that feels more personal, that feels um, that there's somebody who's watching and making sure that I'm doing the right things and making the kind of progress I need to make, both as a student as well as as just a human being, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what you see at a uh, historically black college or women's college or any, you know, sort of small liberal arts college is there's an opportunity for uh, for that kind of camaraderie and, and, and individual and group knowledge to emerge. Um, and big universities have multiple ways to do that. They do that through... Greek life, for instance, they do it through sometimes through athletics and through, um, you know, even the majors at a large college get sort of very clustered and tight. Um, and at smaller colleges, there tends to be you don't need to develop that kind of artificial smallness because you're living it. NC State has over 30,000 undergraduate students. It's pretty large. Um, we've talked a little bit about the disparity in size. When you came to NC State as an administrator, you'd previously been at ECU, which is a similarly large university. What was it like in either your transition from from Meredith to East Carolina? What was that transition um, going into a master's program at a much larger university? How did that compare to your small college experience at Meredith? Well, one of the things that happens when you go into a graduate program is, um, and I don't know how people feel this, if, you're, if you've grown up in a big university and you go to a graduate school at a big university. So I'm not sure exactly how this feels, but one of the things I was aware of is that when I went to East Carolina, I actually felt my world got a lot smaller hmm. um, because you're doing everything is about your discipline. It is in a single building uh, with pretty much the same cast of characters, you know. There's a there's a set faculty, there's a set group of or cohort of students you go in with. So I actually felt my world was was ten times bigger at Meredith than it was when I went to East Carolina. The other big transition I had just going from a women's college to a co ed institution is I remember the first week or so in class being puzzled why only the guys were talking. <laughs> yeah, and I, I kept looking at the other women and saying, "Don't you have something to add here?" Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and of course, Meredith taught me to be quite bold and straightforward, so I participated empowered. freely yeah, in there. But so that was that was a little that was a little different. So. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so back to your time at NC State, you uh, started in the role as assistant dean for undergraduate studies, which quickly changed to. Assistant Vice Provost for Undergraduate Affairs. You you were overseeing all these programs. What was sort of your role in doing all that? And why, like, I guess I'm particularly interested in, first of all, why your, like, role changed so quickly. And 
you know, you said you got to shape like 50% of it. So what yeah, that was like. Yeah, yeah. So. One of the things I got to work on was um, assessment of student learning outcomes, for instance, had become a really big deal with our accreditors and others. Um, very contentious on many campuses uh, and, and honestly started that way here at NC State. And then some early pioneers really caught on to what it meant to really assess student learning and and modify curriculum and uh, delivery as a result of that. So that was really exciting. That was pretty cutting edge stuff. Um, and and we did a lot of it because we wanted to be able to be responsive to legislators and accreditors and others who had questions about, yeah, but how do you know the students know? How do you know they can do? Yeah, they got an A on a on a course, but how do you know they can actually do it? They can talk about it. Can they do it? So it's it's all of that together. That was exciting. The honors program, we did some transition work with it to um, to sort of expand it uh, and its vision. Uh, new student orientation has always been sort of a, um, a a really exciting planning and implementation model for getting students, as we talked earlier about, now, what does it mean to transition to a huge university? And it doesn't happen over. It doesn't happen just because you move into a dorm room. Uh, there's so many other elements of that that uh, that this group was really spectacular at getting. Um, the transition program was for students whose records suggested they were underprepared academically and might struggle, might be a bit at risk, and that through giving them some additional support. We knew they could succeed, and they proved it over and over. They were really great students as well. Um, so I'm thinking the 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 other thing that we added as part of so it started out as sort of connected to the honors program, and later I think split off, but may not have was um, an, an office for scholarship, uh, helping connect students with opportunities to pursue, for instance, the Rhodes Scholarship or the Truman Scholarship or Fulbrighter, something like that, which I hope you're doing too, by the way. <laughs> um, but but recognizing that that was a role that individual faculty were taking on, but they didn't necessarily know that another faculty member across campus was grooming another student. And if they could put this together uh, with some coordination, we could really – make sure we weren't overlooking really talented students that would be so competitive for these scholarships or, you know, everybody duplicating efforts and, and things like that. So all of that was was really exciting. And we were, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that I'm right about this, but it certainly felt that we were at the beginning of that wave of some really important research being conducted about what it is that successful students do, yeah, yeah. you know, what's what's available to them, what do they take advantage of, how are they supported, and and it it just was sort of a game changer for for colleges where I think typically um, students came in, you either made it or you didn't, yeah, you know, yeah, and a lot of faculty even saw themselves as gatekeepers that right. their their great claim to fame was keeping students out mm -hmm. of their major and mm -hmm. not letting them pursue. Um, licensing exactly the weed out mentality and instead recognizing you know a, a greater majority of your students can learn than you're giving them credit for yeah and and it's up to us as academicians and scholars and teachers and educators and leaders 
to put those pieces together and help students find their way. After NC State, Dr. Allen went to Widener University, which is a private institution with campuses in Pennsylvania and Delaware. It's about midway between the size of NC State and Meredith College. She held an administrative role at Widener, overseeing both academic and student affairs for the university. And I asked her about the comparison between working at a private institution like Widener and the public institutions like ECU and NC State, where she had worked previously. The public-private thing is very interesting. Um, One of the things that's nice about a public system is you all sort of share uh, good times and bad times, you know, Um, which doesn't make everybody happy, um, but it it is a fact of it. Uh, at a private institution, you you make it or don't make it all on your own. Uh, and so for a lot of leaders, that's very appealing, that kind of autonomy is that um, good, bad or indifferent. We're going to make we're going to make decisions based on who and what we are and let the, you know, let the chips fall where they may in terms of enrollment and, and security and all that. But um but the truth is, when you're building on a reputation for excellence and great alumni support and donor support and things like that, you've got some freedom to really do some things that uh, that sometimes at public institutions, your hands can be tied. Um, concerns about duplication of programs, for instance, or resources and things like that can, um, or what's been promised to another campus, you know, um, and, and what you have to manage from that perspective of, with the UNC system, 16 campuses. So uh, so that makes a big difference. But um, a lot of people like the, um, you, you know, the other aspect of, of a private institution that gets um, grossly misrepresented is that we are all elite and rich and uh, very, very expensive. And the truth is um, 30% of our students, for instance, are Pell eligible. And then if you could explain a bit more what Pell. Sure. Pell eligible is the the, uh, the least wealthy uh, college student bracket mm-hmm. um, that with good academic records and, and little financial support, these students still have a chance to go to college. Yeah. And that's what it's really all about. It's a merit need-based. It, it is. It is. And... Um, so students still have to meet admissions criteria, things like that. But um, it, but it is it is help for families that uh, that cannot afford college, mm-hmm. uh, which is so important because we do recognize the role of college and social mobility. It, it is what makes a difference for most people uh, from from lower incomes. So you know that's really important. The fact that we put so much of our own money towards financial aid is really important. Uh, people tend to look at look up on the website and see what the sticker price for Meredith is or any private and uh, often freak out uh, and don't hear the other part of the equation that says, okay, 95% of Meredith students have some form of financial aid. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we coordinate $50 million in financial aid every year. Mm -hmm. $25 of that is our own money. So off of our endowment and things like that. So, uh, and scholarships and and so forth. So, um, so there's stories that get, slanted uh, and misreported. Uh, And the truth of the matter is one of the great things about a state like North Carolina that historically supported higher education has slipped a little bit, but um, is that the publics and the privates both admit we need each other. 
the publics would be very quick to say they can't do it all. We can't build buildings fast enough. We can't hire enough faculty. We can't we can't expand to accommodate all the students that right now are in private institutions mm-hmm. and are getting great education. Mm-hmm. So there's a very healthy feeling in North Carolina between the publics and the privates and the community college system as well. Just to finish the chronology, you left Widener University for Meredith. You go back to Meredith as president. So I guess I'm interested in two things. First of all, what made you, well, what made you apply for the job? I think it's kind of obvious. There was an opening at the university where <laughs> you want to be. But I think more important is what made you feel like you had the credentials? What, what, what made you feel you were credentialed to, to lead the institution? Fair questions. And I think I can tell a story that answer both of them. Yeah. Um, when I went to Widener, I was, it, my first week on the job, I was talking with my president, Jim Harris, great guy, great friend, mentor, all of that. No longer at Widener, he's now president at University of San Diego. Um, but in my first week on the job, he called me into his office and he said, so what do you want to do after this job? And I said, I'm not sure. He says, would you want a presidency? I said, I don't know. I'm going to be watching you and what you have to do to see if it's something I think I could do as well. And he said, okay. He said, well, let's assume that you do want a presidency then. Where would you want to be president? I said, that part's easy, Meredith College. (laughs) Okay. So seven years later, he came in my office and he said, Joe, have you heard about Meredith College? I said, yes. He says, do you know the president is retiring? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and he, he kind of looked at me and he closed the door and he said, it's time. And I said, yeah, it's time. And I think about during the seven years that I worked with him, I know that even though I had um, the senior vice presidency title, I had academic and student affairs, I had you know, the eight colleges and and four campuses on two states and all that. I know I also got to do some things, though, that most provosts don't get to do. So I was involved in conversations about real estate, Mm. partnerships with the city, uh, developing a relationship with the city of Philadelphia. We were actually about 10 miles south of Philadelphia in a a different town. so understanding roles with the community, understanding partnerships through chambers of commerce and, you know, volunteer organizations and, and what it meant to collaborate with other institutions mm-hmm. on some initiatives. Um, talking with legislators was it's just not something that many provosts get to do. Uh, working on donor relations and, and international travel to cement some particular relationships and partnerships. So, uh, And in that sense, I think that's where I started to, to realize more. This wasn't just what it meant to be a provost. This is what it means to be a president. Yeah. This is how, this is what he is doing for me yeah. um, to make sure I have those experiences. So he was in a way kind of grooming you. Absolutely. To, uh, to Absolutely. You to be a, yep. he believed in you. Yes, he did. He did. And he tested me, <laughs> yeah. which was great too. I needed that, yeah. You know, and the and the 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 culture there was was very different from from Raleigh, from Meredith, and all that, and that tested me too, and mm-hmm. made me a little tougher. And I probably needed that as well. So. <laughs> um, you said you you know mentioning some of the other things you were getting to do while you were at Widener. 
you know, politics is an unpopular word, but it sounds like you were kind of learning the political side of leading a, a university or college. Um, is that kind of approximately what you were? Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it is, it's really important for leaders in higher education to understand the role they play in their immediate community uh, and in their state and in the nation because we are preparing the next generation of leaders. We're preparing that next generation of politicians uh, and, and policy analysts and people who understand data and understand how to ask good questions and understand whether they're getting real answers or fake answers. <laughs> so. Now that we're at you being at Meredith, we can kind of get into more contemporaneous issues and okay. what, what's, what's happening now. So I meant to ask about the I-440 widening. So um, it, it's been uh, it's been a very interesting process, um, and th- we know that um, I-440 Beltline narrows <laughs> between us, um, and uh, so we've got the University Club on one side, Meredith on the other. We know there are going to be some uh, some disproportionate effects on Meredith because we have a residence hall right there. So we've got students that are sleeping, um, uh, studying. And, you know, the noise of the construction, the traffic is, is going to be a big deal. We respect as well that uh, NC State University Club um, is a recreational area for families and has been um, uh, a, a really good community uh, asset for, for many, many years. Um, the part of our property that they will be taking in the initial designs included um, uh, commuter parking which is a big issue for us because of uh, the residential side of our campus versus the academic side. Um, and we want to make sure that commuters have easy access to parking to run into classes and go back out and uh, live their lives and go to jobs and all that. Plus another area of the campus, which is a prime building site for the, the next academic uh, or athletic building, whatever. Um, so we, we've worked with uh, the, the great thing in this conversation is I think uh, neither NC State nor Meredith tried to throw the other one under the bus and yeah. say, take more of their land. No, take more of their <laughs> land, you know. That um, way, push it that way. Exactly, exactly. So uh, so I think that's, that's it, it's really indicative of the longstanding good relationship between Meredith and State. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're hearing now uh, is that they have, we, we asked them to go back to the drawing board. Uh, try again. Uh, what you've designed is beautiful in a totally urban setting. We'd be excited by it, you know. But we're trying to maintain a quiet residential garden in the middle of this urban setting. So we we ask that they respect what our campus is, um, both as a place of learning and living. Uh, but as well as an asset to to Raleigh. I mean, we are a park that uh, we have visitors, guests all the time. Um, so what they have said is they are working on another design. They will be back in touch with us very soon to show us, you know, some some nudges and pushes and pulls and tries to, to lessen the impact on Meredith. I think I want to get right back to this comment you made about North Carolina and higher education. What's kind of your perspective on how North Carolina political leadership 
has done in recent years for higher education, if you want to speak to primary education as well, feel free to do so. Well, I think it's, first of all, I think it's really important for us to uh, separate state from federal legislation. Uh, the two impact each other tremendously. But um, one of the things that North Carolina has historically had every right to be proud of is its commitment to education as a solution. Mm -hmm. um, so for a state that has, um, I, I think I'm right about this, Carter. I think it's got, in eastern North Carolina, the 41 counties of eastern North Carolina comprise one of the, one of the largest low-poverty areas in the country. Okay. So if you want to look at what is it that makes a difference, it, or is that something we throw up our hands and say, can't do anything about it, there it is. You know. um, North Carolina has historically said we can invest in, um, in poor areas, in rural areas, um, and inner city urban areas. Uh, and we can invest funds in education and make a difference. We can change people's lives. Um, and, and honestly, that's, that's a message that I think we're, we're losing today that concerns me greatly because when people question the value of higher education, well, who thought anybody would ever question the value of education, of knowledge, you know? Yeah. Especially when we, we know that we are part of a knowledge economy now. We're not a manufacturing economy mm -hmm. anymore, although we manufacture more than people like to admit or, or, or recognize. But if, you, if you're part of a knowledge economy and you're not investing in education, um, I just don't see how that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And if you know that to be a global leader – like America has been and wants to still be or and, and even solidify, um, and you turn your back on education, um, I'd, it, it, it's, it's a nonsensical equation, in, in my opinion. And I don't know what you're investing in instead. So if you say, if we're not, so if we're not invested in education, what are we investing in? I'm, I'm clueless. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm dumbfounded and clueless. Yeah. So. Yeah. You don't want entitlement programs. You don't want to give money away to people who aren't working for it. You don't want to give money to people who haven't earned it but could. Um, then you've got to invest in the things that will make them want to work. So that's that's innovation. Merit College released, actually, I'm not sure what, what exact entity did this, but the status of women in, in North Carolina report. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. I saw it on your website, and it kind of sure. intrigued me. I looked through it a little sure. bit. Sure, it started uh, as the Status of Girls report in North Carolina. And, yeah, we have um, a faculty member in sociology, Dr. Amy Hess, who has a team of students who do this as an undergraduate project on a rotation. So they've just released the second version. The first one was three years ago, so we do it every three years. Mm -hmm. uh, and they identify about... Um, seven to nine, I think, characteristics of ways they want to measure whether girls are doing better than, than they were. So they did, the first year was the baseline study. They, some of it is compared against boys in, uh, in different, uh, different categories. But some of it is now year to year we can do the trend analysis to see if we've made any improvements 
and any gain. So some of the things we look at are um, anything from academic performance, participation and engagement in um, social movements such as um, volunteer organizations or outreach for the poor or whatever. Um, we do an analysis of, of what they tell us about themselves, their self-image, um, bullying, how much time they spend watching TV or, or participating in social media, and sort of putting all this together as a picture for what is it like to be a girl in North Carolina right now. And so odds are that, and we can break this down by race, by age, by uh, uh, ethnicity and so forth, and we can start to, to pinpoint some ways that uh, conditions are improving or deteriorating for girls. And, and we know that matters so much because uh, whatever is happening to them now is what's going to follow them into decisions of whether to go to college, where to go to college, you know, what to major in, whether to stay in college or drop out or never go at all. Uh, and then those decisions have economic consequences for them. And, and and one of the things we're very particular about at Meredith is uh, we are a women's college, so it is our mission to advocate for improved lives for women. But we do that not just for women, because we know that when women succeed, children do better. We know the elderly do better, and we know that men do better. So it is it is our approach to making society better. Yeah, to tide that raises all boats. Absolutely. I think absolutely. <laughs> or we can go with the other cliche that women tend to be the canaries in the mine. Oh. When bad things happen to women, they're probably also happening to children and to the elderly and eventually to men. So, yeah. One thing I saw in this report, I I think it's like a really cool thing. I mean, I a lot of the information I'm still kind of working through just out of interest, but um, I think it's really cool that, you know, and only appropriate that the Women's College of North Carolina would be collecting this data and presenting it for public consumption and review. But one of the things I thought was funny, I noticed it's I highlighted girls making up a large percentage of student government offices in high school, which, you know, is promising because you know, as as you and I both know, women are severely un underrepresented in legislatures and just kind of in the political class generally. The number of women in the North Carolina State Senate and House are 13 out of 50 in the Senate and then 31 out of 120 in the House. The men are the supermajority by far in, in both of those. So... I think it's hopeful to see that girls are at least taking the lead young in their life. Well, there are two things I'd like to, to comment on about that. Sure. Um, one is that there was a study done um, <clears throat> six or seven years ago, I guess. And in fact, the former president of Duke, Nan Kehane, did it. Um, looking at girls who go from leadership roles in high school to their intentions to participate in leadership in college, and then whether they actually do. And she focused on one particular Ivy League college that will go nameless. And remarkably, of the students who left high school leadership roles intending to go into leadership in college, within one year of being in college, the overwhelming majority of them had dropped out of the leadership roles. 
Yeah, we found that very discouraging. Compared to when women go to women's colleges, all the leadership roles are are held by women. You know, so so there is there is that in that sense of preparing to to be a leader, to be a voice, to to do whatever it is you want to do, mm-hmm. including run for office. Mm-hmm. So that's my second point. You've got the status of um, girls in North Carolina report. There's a companion, uh, the second in the series. Is on women in politics in oh, North Carolina. Okay, uh, is that out? It is. Oh. It is. It came out last year. Um, so that is Dr. David McLennan's work with his students in the Meredith Polls um, project. But the interesting thing that that report concludes is that when women run for office, they tend to win. Mm, interesting. So, so that's a really that's a really big deal. Yeah, if you think about it. And if you watch the Virginia elections a couple of weeks ago, so there were, I think, 16 seats mm-hmm. open. Uh, and of those 16 seats, um, like nine or 10 of them went to women yeah. who were running for the first time. One of whom was a trans woman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so when you're saying there are women being elected to office who are running for the first time. What's going on? And it's very clear that um, there are a gazillion reasons for women not to run. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you what they are. <laughs> you know, everything from have children, why would I throw myself in that fray, and, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but, but I find one of the really interesting things is that women seem, if you take that one incident, which is not enough to really make a, a trend statement about but they seem to be at a place on a number of fronts where they say, enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do better mm-hmm. than this. I can put myself out there. I can raise my hand and I can say, no, not anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it, it's um, it's interesting to see what will happen because a lot of times that creates a wave and sometimes it creates the opposite, right. you know, the, the clubbing down again. So right. it'll be interesting to follow. Uh, as I mentioned, a trans woman is one of the first to be in, I think, a state legislature um, after those races. Um, I want to ask about trans women at Meredith. I guess whether there are any, first of all, but then also I'm interested in sort of the gender of the graduate school because about half of that, I think, is is men as well. Yeah, I guess, first of all, if you are in high school and you're trans and you identify as a woman, can you come to Meredith, first of all? And then, well, yeah, I guess we'll just start there. Okay. Um, Meredith is chartered to admit women. Yep. Okay. So what we say is, I don't care you became a woman, you know, um, but you have to check female on the application. And I don't care what you graduate as. We've had... Women before who've come to us have transitioned um, during their time with us. We have alumni of our undergraduate program who are men. Um, my feeling is, and we continue to watch all this very carefully because it is um, it is unfolding in many ways in many institutions, both co-ed as well as single-sex institutions. Um, but my feeling is whoever we admit to Meredith, I want to feel welcome. 
mm-hmm. at Meredith. Mm-hmm. And if if um, if it is uh, if whether it's your race, your ethnicity, what you want to study, where you're from, what you look like. You know, all of that. It's it's all important because it's all who you are. And we want to honor that. Um, now, at the graduate level, we accept men and women. Um, and and we do so not only because it's fine to, but uh, actually our creditor requires us to. Oh, um, interesting. So if you'll... If you if you recall uh, Title IX legislation, right. which gets a lot of attention from athletics and sexual harassment. Yeah. Uh, what people miss is that Title IX also was about admissions, and so single sex institutions are actually, and we say we were grandmothered in as a single sex institution. But what our creditors say, and what the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education, says is, okay. You can be who and what you've always been, but if you add another degree level, um, you have to then be co-ed. So when we reinstated the graduate degrees, we had to admit men as well yeah. as women. Yeah. And, um, you know, we people people are always kind of surprised how many men are on our campus, uh, both faculty, staff, students, graduate level students, as well as cooperating Raleigh College students mm-hmm. uh, that come over, which I always think... So, so many guys have really missed missed that opportunity to be a student at Meredith <laughs> College. That was uh, so smart when I was a student. A couple of guys came over and took Latin classes. But um, but uh, but the other interesting thing about that is is there's a there's also a way in graduate programming that I think the the revelations of the last couple of weeks, for instance, in Hollywood and Washington and and corporate American networks and so forth. Um, has really revealed is that there is also an opportunity for us through our programming and through our culture and climate environment to help prepare men to be better leaders of women, Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that if you're going to start a business or you're going to be a CEO or, or have a leadership role, any kind of company or hospital or nonprofit or whatever it may be to pursue a degree at a women's college gives you an opportunity to understand a different perspective yeah you know i had not thought of that but yeah yeah and i think it prepares men differently yeah to be leaders so i'm always immensely thrilled with our our uh, our men graduate students who quite frequently walking across the stage at commencement, um, take their diploma, shake my hand, and say, this was the best decision I ever made. You know, I'm a much better leader because I went to Meredith. Yeah. And and I, I say that in the context not only of just, just understanding how women work, that they work differently, that they're, they're sometimes in and out of the workplace because they stop out to have children, they come back in. Uh, and and these men are not freaked out by that. They plan for it, you know. And and so in the old days, you would hear people um, not want to hire women. Oh, they're going to get pregnant. They're going to stop. You know, we can't promote her because she's going to get pregnant and leave, or she's going to follow her husband somewhere. And 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 good leaders don't think that way anymore. They plan for it, you know. And it's uh, it's a pretty exciting time to look at the the roles of gender, you know, throughout not only higher education. 
but what happens afterwards. You brought up men graduating as graduate students from Meredith, learning not just how to lead people, but having sensitivity, especially to leading women. And yeah, I thought that comment was interesting because it's, you know, not that men are merely learning how to lead, but they're also gaining this thing that, you know, you do workplace training when you come on the job and you learn like, don't sexually assault and this is what it looks like. And like, right. that's kind of right. the end of it or whatever. But, you know, the men who are doing grad school at Meredith learn the culture of like what it looks like to be sensitive to issues of gender and uh, womanhood and, and all of this. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's a unique opportunity because it's not something you get in the two hours you spend at your desk the first day at your job sure. sort of going through um, what you're not allowed to do or whatever. So, so a lot of that too, Carter, is really that a lot of times we assume that there are company policies about everything. Um, maybe yes, maybe there are. You can have great policies in place and still have a toxic yes. work environment. I think for for a lot of women, for instance, when we look at women who go into STEM fields and technology in particular seems to be a seems to be a standard bearer right now for for some difficulty. Um, so women go into these fields, and they are forty five percent more likely than men to leave those fields. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? And if you look at it, there there are some matters. For instance, the 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 guys. Um, culture of staying up all night drinking red bull and coding (laughs) okay um you've got a woman with a baby she can't do that um she's got to go home she's been up all night with a sick child she comes in harried the next day falls asleep at her desk does anybody think to ask her is there something going on Mm -hmm. are you okay do you need to take some time off Mm -hmm. you know instead it's she's not pulling her weight you know, she's disengaged. And so there, there are so many things that are, seem sort of subtle. They're nuanced and all that. And when you look at them, when you get to the question and ask the question, you go, oh, God, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I didn't even think what it must be like to have, you know, a baby that's teething, mm-hmm. you know, that you're up with all night or that's sick or, you know, that has some medical condition that you're responsible for. And heaven forbid if you're a single mother. Or have a less than helpful partner. Um, so it, it, it's it's that kind of thinking that we need to to get to a yeah. little better. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and women don't want to complain, right? You know, right. they don't want to call attention to themselves. Maybe they won't notice I'm asleep at my desk yeah. today, kind yeah. of thing. You know. And this sort of plays into you brought it up a little bit earlier um, the other contemporaneous issue of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Right. Particularly in, as you said, Hollywood, but really in all sectors. In of all work. sectors, absolutely. As you said, an important part of this is culture and um, men or everybody understanding the nuance of like, if you have a baby, this is what you can expect. You can expect to maybe have to leave work randomly, maybe right. to fall asleep at your desk. Like, all of these things and you know the culture of understanding doesn't just play into how men should be properly treating women but also just thinking them of them as like full people who are not to be 
controlled with like power in in um sort of like sexual manners right which is something that seems so obvious but apparently needs to be learned well you, you are so right in fact i was talking with some friends just in the last week or so that um i remember having a good friend when i was a new faculty member having a good friend talking about teaching his son if a woman if a girl says no she means no mm -hmm. you don't argue with her you don't mm -hmm. try to change her mind you walk away yeah you know and it, it was it was pretty amazing to me because i remember thinking then and it's just come back to me in the last couple of weeks um are parents still being that explicit yeah with their kids yeah about i mean we talk about you know protecting yourself from pregnancy and disease or we talk about abstinence we talk about making good decisions and all that but there's certain really granular behaviors that are really important. So one of the things, for instance, I find particularly interesting and something we're studying uh, at Meredith with the transition from college to, to work, to out, because um, we do really, really good research about how to help students transition from high school to college. We know what happens. We know there's a routine cycle we know exactly when they're going to tell mom and dad that they don't want to go back to school i mean we we we've got all that we haven't done as much on the back end of this but just one piece of it in in this context it's so important is you think about it in college how are you likely to meet people that you want to date mm -hmm. they're either in your class they are the sister of your classmate or a roommate or best friend or you meet at a college bar or fraternity party. So what happens when you transition out of college? Where do you meet people to date? More than likely in the workplace. And that's where it starts getting complicated. Yeah. Because now suddenly, okay, boy, my boss is really hot. Okay. Have you crossed a the line there? <laughs> what if we what if we both agree we're both hot? You yeah, know? Yeah. And we both like each other. So the whole power differential comes in, mm. of course, is so important. But but it's even awkward dating a colleague, maybe somebody you're working on a project with. That and you telling HR about it. Exactly. Yeah. Or that you don't even have power over each other. But boy, can things turn nasty quickly, you know? Uh, and and so it, it becomes complicated even when you think as you get older it's going to get simpler. Mm. It really doesn't always. And so it just changes. Yeah. Um, what do you think about when – you know, you as the president of a women's college are watching you know, the news and you see all of these allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and, you know, men stepping down, reacting to it, hopefully learning things. What, what's kind of on your mind when you see this national movement that is being created where women are, you know, finally willing to speak out? What are your thoughts when you watch that kind of going on a national level? I don't know if it's I, – I don't see it sort of in our, our state necessarily, but I might – It's coming. It's coming, yeah. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming to every small town between here and the beach. So. <laughs> um, a couple of things I see. One is finally, you know, mm -hmm. finally there are women that are coming out in sufficient numbers to feel confident that they can say things and be believed. That's really important. Um, I think it, some other things I feel about it, though, is um, will there be blowback? Right. Women always worry about blowback. You know, 
is this going to be a big um, uh, rallying point at some point for somebody to say something like, all these cases can't possibly be true. The law of averages says certain percentage are more lying. Okay. And then you get to decide which ones are lying, which ones are not. I mean, that's, that's, that's a distraction that I hope we, we don't go down, but I predict we will. Um, I think there is also, I mean, to the matter of, that we were talking earlier, the distinction between, you know, as, as, you, as you grow up, um, the distinction between sort of natural curiosity and exploration as opposed to violence and um, disrespect, uh, an intentional demeaning, an intentional uh, use of authority and power, whether it's physical or emotional or, or whatever. So understanding, boy, how complex this is. This is really, really complicated, folks. And the, the, the obvious slash, um, I don't mean the, the easy calls. I don't mean the easy in any way. But I, I guess just stick with obvious or where it's clearly unwanted. It's clearly offensive. It's, I gave you no signals. I asked you to stop. You knew you had, you let me know you had power to fire me or to ruin my career or you know those those matters to me go in one bucket um but there's so many other buckets out there of um somebody misread a signal and made a pass at you you know or um i i thought we liked each other or we went on a date and i thought we had a good time so i tried to kiss her and suddenly you know that was all the wrong thing to do uh, there is, there is. Um, I, th- I think sometimes we forget that we all have in us a, a bit of um, the awkward, the the misread uh, nerd, um, social delinquent. You know, yeah. none of us is in complete command and control at all times of how we read people or how we're read. And so, so there's that as well. Um, overall, I'm I'm hopeful that we're we're going to quickly anybody that needs to to confront their their um, the harasser. I hope will do it. I hope they will get any kind of counseling and support that they need. But overall, as a nation, rather than the one-on-one cases and and all of that, and to hear who got named today and all that i hope we'll get to a place that says let's just be more intentional about how we behave to each other how we treat each other um and i had a great conversation with my mother who just turned 90 about a month ago and is as i say sharper funnier everything else than than i am but um i asked her about this i said what do you think has changed so much in our culture from when you were young and dating to, I said, do you think it's the, the role of religion? Do you think it was the role of morality? Do you think it was, you know, just good girls don't do that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And gentlemen don't do that. And she says, you know, no, I, I, what I really think it was is that we just took the time to get to know each other. We didn't make the missteps because we took the time. 
to get to know each other. And that was our form of respect. But if you think about it too, that was also, that did define our recreation, was, was to be able to spend time with a nice boy or a nice girl was the best recreation you could possibly have because we didn't go to a lot of movies. We didn't have cars. We didn't, you know. And um, so you recognize pretty quickly if you didn't honor that time to build that friendship, to build that relationship, you suddenly didn't have anything to do. You didn't miss signals because yeah, yeah. they were And clear. so, exactly. So you took the time to get to know each other. You took the time to have great in-depth conversations. And, and I think all of us growing up, we had a couple of those special friends that you could just stay up all night talking about, you know, girls or boys or, you know, whatever. And you start figuring those things out sort of bit by bit. And it's when you rush them. And if you look at these cases that are in the news right now, um, almost all of them have been, any details given was a suddenly he turned and, yeah. you know, did whatever. And the the confusion in, for the women is, where where did you get the idea that I wanted your hand there or your or your tongue there or whatever you know uh, it is is really it it really just sort of piqued my interest with that notion of timing. We're in such a rush today to do so many things and um, relationships just shouldn't be one of them. Mm-hmm. It just takes good time. Is there anything you want to tack on here at the end that emphasizes from what we've... I just had a great time talking with you. It was absolutely <laughs> delightful. I appreciate it so, so much. Thank you. you bet. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. Thank you.